This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And today we're going to talk about Sarah Palin and the New York Times and Dr. Dre and H. Ross Perot. How are we going to do all of that with two different interviews? First, I talked to NPR's David Falkenfluck about Sarah Palin's unsuccessful attempt so far to sue the New York Times for libel. And more important, what seems to be a concerted effort by someone we don't know who yet to change libel law in the U.S. Uh, we should note here that David and I talked on Wednesday morning, and that was before news broke about jurors in that case learning that the case was going to be dismissed by the judge no matter what their verdict was. So maybe that news will change this case. We shall see. And then I had an internet reunion with Chuck Klosterman, the excellent writer and thinker, who's got a new book out called The 90s, and it's about the 90s. It's a book. Chuck was born to write, and also a very un-Chuck-like book in some ways. We talk about that. And because this podcast is this podcast, we also talk about a lot of other stuff, including what the rise of the internet did and didn't mean for the 90s, which is something I think about a lot, and Chuck was kind enough to indulge me in that discussion. Uh, it's a long podcast because they're two long, interesting conversations with two interesting people. I'll just keep saying the word interesting until you stop paying attention to me. So I'm going to stop talking right now so you can listen to me and David Falkenflick. I'm here with David Falkenflick from NPR. Welcome, David. Great to be back. You have been covering the Sarah Palin versus New York Times trial. If you have not been following this trial, and many of you haven't because you're not media nerds, some of you are media nerds, Sarah Palin, the former vice presidential candidate, former governor of Alaska, lost a libel suit against the New York Times not once, but twice this week. Uh, I want to ask about what happens next and why all this matters. But first, can we talk about how we got here? Why was Sarah Palin suing the New York Times? So it takes us back to... To be honest, it really takes us back to uh, early spring of 2010. Sarah Palin's uh, political action committee, and this is sort of the heyday of the Tea Party movement, uprising against Obama. Palin was, of course, John McCain's running mate in 08 and become a hero of the sort of conservative wing of the Republican Party. Uh, folksy, uh, a proto-Trump, if you will, attacking the media. Her political action committee puts out an ad that targets Democratic lawmakers for electoral defeat. It's a fundraising ad, and it puts these sort of stylized graphic crosshairs over the congressional districts with names of various lawmakers. She comes in for criticism at this time, she, you know, claims that this is overheated. Among the people who criticize her, Democratic Congresswoman Gabby Giffords of Arizona, Palin kind of sloughs that criticism off. Ten months later, in January of 2011, there's this mass shooting in Tucson. Deranged man unleashes, uh, kills six people, including a nine-year-old girl, wounds about a dozen more, and gravely wounds the same Democratic lawmaker, Gabby Giffords. Palin again comes in for a welter of criticism. She knocks it back. She accuses the media of blood libel by in some ways saying there's some link between the two. And indeed, it's really important to point out that no proof was uh, ever developed or shown to indicate that the shooter was motivated by Palin's PAX ad. And in fact, he had been fixated on Giffords prior uh, to that ad ever being 
released. Why does this matter? Well, six years later, June of 2017, a Republican uh, lawmaker named Steve Scalise, powerful guy on the Republican side uh, from Louisiana, is shot along with a couple others at a congressional baseball practice near the Capitol. And the shooter's a deranged leftist. And the New York Times rushes to develop some sort of editorial take on it that day. And initially, they're thinking it might be that they look at gun control or the connection between lawmakers who were shot and their stances on gun control. And, and it develops into something different over the course of the day. This is the New York Times editorial page. Not, That's not correct. Their, I'm sorry. The site. Times yeah. themselves developed this edit. And under the leadership of James Bennett at that time, the editor of the editorial pages and the opinion section of the Times, they develop it into a two-part argument. One is to denounce and decry the easy availability of guns in America and the need to tighten guns uh, regulation. And the other is about the overheated political rhetoric. And what they do is acknowledge that the shooter in the Scalise case that day appears to have been of the left and from the political left. And they say liberals need to acknowledge this can happen from the left and the right. And of course, there was an even clearer link, uh, a more direct link in the Gabby Giffords shooting six years earlier. But there wasn't. And that was wrong. And in addition, the editorial uh, wrongly made it sound as though the crosshairs stylized in the Palin Pack ad were over images of the lawmakers themselves as opposed mm -hmm. to their congressional districts, which suggests it was even more personalized. Uh, and that was mistaken. The key thing for The Times and for Bennett in some ways was that Bennett, rushing to get the editorial done, inserted the language about the link and connection not just simply saying it's incendiary rhetoric, but saying there was a link between the climate in which the Gabby Gifford shooting happened and the Palin ad arrived, and there and there wasn't. And this is the crux of what, what offended Palin so much. Palin's offended. The Times apologizes and corrects themselves the nope. next day. No, let's be clear. The Times didn't really apologize, and that was a lot of hay was made over that. Yep. But they corrected the error. They said we, we were mistaken. And by the way, the, the, the editor trying to improve someone's work um, by making an argument tighter and more robust and then sometimes introducing errors into the work, that is commonplace. Not unheard uh, of, happens, right? Happens, it, it happens all the time, and, and it's just sort of how journalism often works. And usually it's for the better, and then occasionally there are screw-ups like this. So Palin then says, you have libeled me, and proceeds with this suit. It is very, very, very difficult to win a libel case in the U.S., and incredibly hard if you are a public figure like Sarah Palin. What's the current standard for libel in the U.S.? What do you have to do to win a libel case in the U.S., if, especially if you're a public figure? Right. So broad strokes here, but it actually all goes back to a 1964 ruling called Times v. Sullivan, and it involved an ad that the Times ran from a bunch of civil rights leaders against uh, this chief public official commissioner who oversaw essentially public safety and law enforcement in Alabama. And, you know, essentially this was a segregationist public official. Some of the specific facts in the ad were wrong. And the Times was sued. And what the ruling boiled down to was, look, mistakes are going to get made in journalism. And part of the First Amendment is to embody the sense that under American laws, there is a desire to foster robust public debate and therefore robust scrutiny of public officials and public figures. And in order to claim 
that somebody should be liable under the law, liable under the law for defamation. You have to show that somebody defamed you, that is, wrote something or said something that is hurtful to your reputation, that it's wrong, and that they acted with something called actual malice. And it doesn't mean malice like you're a malicious person. It means that you knew that the information you were publishing or broadcasting was wrong or that you were acting so recklessly that you should have known that the information you were publishing was probably wrong, that it was right in front of you. And for the desires that, as opposed to a private citizen whose life isn't necessarily fodder for dissection, a public figure or somebody who has been in public life in a significant way and who has sought public attention and entered the fray in politics, you know, is going to be more open to that. And there has to be some protection for what the Times called an honest mistake, uh, particularly one that is corrected uh, in, in, as you said, in this case, in less than a day. So get, getting something wrong does not mean that you are in legal trouble, shouldn't mean that you're in legal trouble. And if you're a public figure, you're someone who stepped into this world, um, it's a much, much higher bar. You have to prove that someone wanted to get this wrong and also hurt you by getting it wrong. Yeah, that's exactly right, uh, Peter. And, and you know, in addition, you know, our major newspapers and places like NPR are testament to that. We publish corrections all the time. We publish corrections all the time, which means that if the only standard were you got something wrong, we would be sued hundreds of times a year successfully because these are, you know, mortal errors that are, you know, of varying degrees of importance to people they're about. So we've heard people over the years, and and oftentimes they're on the right, complain about this. Donald Trump has complained about libel, and that's related to this, but also a whole other discussion. And it sounds threatening, but it but this this is established case law. What was Sarah Palin trying to achieve by pursuing this case? I'm assuming she's not a, a First Amendment scholar, but someone along the lines would have said, uh, at some point said, this would be very, very hard to win. Do you think she intended to win this case in 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 this courtroom, or is this a longer game that she's attempting to, to win? So let's acknowledge a couple of things here. First, the judge in the case, Judd Rakoff, originally, fairly early on, dismissed it. He said mm-hmm. she doesn't have enough evidence developed here that even if you accept everything she alleges, there's a cause here. He was overruled by an appellate court. So they came back and said, think about it again and think about it in these, these ways. And he said, OK, we're going to trial. And he then you know, dismissed the case, saying she didn't have enough. And we can return to that in a couple minutes. But it tells you that as her lawyers were forced to concede to jurors, they had a very high standard to meet. Let's credit for a moment her lawyer's representations of what her, she wanted to achieve. She said, you know, or through them, that people had been lying about her for a long time. People had been blaming her ads for her political action committee's ads for creating this climate. And she felt, in the words of her lawyer, that enough was enough. A line had been crossed and the jury should send a message. And in a sense, the lawyers were making an emotional appeal to the jury to overcome whatever legal hurdles there were to giving this decision to her and saying, you know, feel from the gut. This is too much and just go with the gut. Mm -hmm. Now, there are other ways to look at it, which is that this was likely something that would have to be appealed. And we can talk about what there is to appeal in a minute. And that there is a strategy here to go higher. 
to reach, in fact, the Supreme Court. I did a story last fall about this where both justices, uh, Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, have indicated an interest in revisiting, revising or unraveling the reasoning of Times v. Sullivan. And let's be clear, before she joined the court, Elena Kagan, years ago in a law review article, indicated that she had some problems with it, too. So you have three sitting justices who one way or another have indicated, maybe not sympathy for Sarah Palin, but indicated that they think that the law, uh, the case law is flawed. And let's also acknowledge there is no federal defamation law. So the case law interpretation, particularly Supreme Court case law of it, is really what we have to go on in applying state laws in federal courts. So you've got a Supreme Court that has shown some interest in, in revisiting this. Two of the justices were involved in high-profile nomination fights in which their character was attacked, maybe are particularly sensitive towards this. So we'll get there in a second. But uh, we're recording this on Wednesday. Yesterday, the jury came back and, and said, you know, we find for the Times. But the day before that, in something I've never seen before, you tell me if you have, the judge came out while the jury was still deliberating and said, by the way, when the jury comes out, I'm dismissing the case regardless of what they say. Why did he say that? What was his argument and what's the point of saying that in advance? I've never seen that before. So the federal judge is named Jed Rakoff. He's uh, something of an intellectual, uh, also a real boisterous character in the law firm, uh, in, the, in, the, in the law courts, I should say, a couple of times making the courtroom burst out with laughter at a couple of his uh, rejoinders to, to lawyers there. You know, the media lawyers I talk to say they've never seen this in media cases. It is very rare for a judge to dismiss charges or, or the claim and then yet still let it go to the jurors. However, there is a logic to it. And it goes like this. Rakoff has been overturned once. He could be overturned again. What he's doing is giving the appellate court, if it disagrees with his ruling, an easy way to ensure that they don't have to go through the entire trial all over again because they have a ready-made jury verdict. And he's also offering himself a little backup for his judgment. In this case, the jury was aligned with him. As he said, you know, I decided the law, you decided the facts, they fell in the same place, uh, which means that unless you've got a highly motivated appeals court panel, there's not a huge incentive for them to really wade into this unless they're concerned about the precedent of the reasoning of the dismissal, to overturn it because if the judge's order is struck down to dismiss, the jury verdict still essentially exonerates the times of liability. He's trying to future-proof the, 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 the result, it sounds Yes, like. although, you know, to be fair to Rakoff, uh, his reasoning, he also was giving the appellate court, should they have found for Governor Palin, the ability to say, and it goes against the times. You have your verdict there. Now, there is one way in which Palin has another card to play, because whether at the appellate level or more likely, should it get to the Supreme Court, should they want to spend the millions of dollars it would take to develop the case for a Supreme Court appeal, you could have a decision, theoretically, in which the appeals court or the Supreme Court finds that the instructions to the jury were wrong and improper, that they set aside the ruling to dismiss and they set aside the jury verdict and say, not that the verdict was wrong, but that the instructions were inappropriate. And why would they do that? They would do that if they were deciding, as you suggested, that the original reasoning 
in Times v. Sullivan itself was wrong or somehow outdated or being misapplied by the judge or the courts. So you mentioned the idea that this would get to the Supreme Court. You've also mentioned cost. I saw an estimate recently that's guesstimating that that it's already cost Palin a million dollars to pursue this case up until now. Who is paying for this? Is Sarah Palin covering her own costs? Is someone funding her? Anyone who's paid much attention to, to this stuff in the past knows that Peter Thiel the, the billionaire, former Facebook board member, funded Hulk Hogan's case against Gawker Media, which ended up bankrupting Gawker Media. Do we have any suggestion that someone is, is bankrolling Palin this time around? Look, this is all speculation because the uh, it has not come up in court and therefore this information hasn't been disgorged to the public. They're certainly not volunteering it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you asked what Palin's play was, whether she had a long play. This is all interpretive. Uh, So I'm not saying that I have reporting to back this up. I'm just going on the information that we have in front of us. Palin seemed like a fairly listless plaintiff. She didn't seem emotionally engaged. Her lawyers tried to sort of account for that by having her testify that, uh, you know, she's not a complainer. Uh, But we've seen her riled up and we've Mm -hmm. seen her riled up about the media. This was, you know, a fairly flat presentation of the emotional toll They didn't have evidence that showed she had been financially harmed. I hate to do this, but there's a scene in uh, A Few Good Men, right, where, you know. You always end up in A Few Good Men if you're talking about a court case. How can you not, right? So Nicholson's on the stand and Tom Cruise is pestering him. And finally, Cruise says, hey, you know, this case is about this poor kid who was being hazed so badly. He begged to get out of Guantanamo Bay. Uh, By the way, when you were told that you were going to go testify, who did you inform? And he concedes that he made plans with see his sister in Virginia for for dinner. And he says, and you, you know, this poor kid who you say that you got, you know, changed orders and got him out of the harm's way and ordered that he'd be leaving Guantanamo forever. Who did he contact? You know, not his family, not his mom, not his sister. Well, essentially the lawyers for the Times, David Axelrod, representing the Times at Ballard Spar in the courtroom, says to Sarah Palin, so this editorial hits you. And it's the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Who did you talk to? Did you talk to your dad? No. Did you talk to your mom? No. Did you talk to your sister this? No. Did you talk to your other sister? No. Your brother? No. Your kids? She says, I think I must talk to my kids. And he's like, but in this sworn deposition, you said you were certain you never talked to your kids about it. She's like, okay, then that must be right. So he's walking through all the people most important to her in life, and mm-hmm. she never talked to them about the editorial. And it seemed to me as though she was uh, flat. And therefore, there are others who wish to do harm to yeah. the New York Times and the mainstream media who have fat wallets. And as you said, in the Peter Thiel case, we're willing to finance the legal case that brought that site down and are looking for avenues through which to uh, erode the high bar that plaintiffs like Palin have to exceed to get damages. And that seems like where we're where we're going here, right? Is that uh, that that there seems to be an effort to revisit libel law. This is an attack on the current state of libel law. It may or may not be successful, but it seems to indicate that there will be more to come. Is that a fair mix of of assessment and speculation? I think that's a very fair analysis of it. I think that you know, it, and it symbolically it makes sense, right? Sarah Palin was kind of a proto-Trump. The party didn't need her anymore once Trump emerged, 2015, right, as a political figure. But in terms of beating up on the press, you know, Palin was doing that. The lamestream media 
you know, there were chants of uh, booing NBC on the floor of the RNC National Convention in uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, when it was when she was there. And that has been such a recurring element of Republican politics since in a way that she has represented. She herself does not seem to be that invested a figure in this. There are those who are. And when Donald Trump kept saying we're going to rewrite federal libel laws, there are no federal libel laws to rewrite. And there's none is going to be passed in Congress anytime soon. But, you know, it turns out that as true for so much of what Trump said, not all of it is empty symbolism. Like there are people who want to make manifest the things that he nods at. And I think that we're in a time now where there are those who do that. And let's not forget there are those who are, you know, suing places like Fox News and Newsmax as well uh, for big, t- big ticket do- uh, dollar figures. I can see why someone would go after the New York Times. They're a big fat target. They're an avatar of, of mainstream media, liberal media, if you want to describe them that way. On the other hand, the New York Times is pretty buttoned up. This is a case in New York with a New York jury. It seems like this would be a very difficult one to pull off. But I'm assuming there are probably other targets that someone will go after with, with a much easier chance of success. I mean, I think it is not a coincidence that, that the Hulk Hogan uh, trial was in Florida, a hometown jury there against a New York media company. I'm not asking for a list of targets, but can you imagine scenarios where Basically, the same sort of sets of facts exist, but a jury rules very differently. My recollection was that, for example, if you think of the kid from uh, Covington, Kentucky. This is the kid who went to the, the mall. and The and mall protest was, was wearing yep. the, you know, uh, the MAGA hat, who was, I think, badly misrepresented in initial social media and certain kinds of media commentary. He got settlements, I believe, from The Washington Post and NBC, among others, maybe CNN. And his lawyers were looking to sue a whole lot of news organizations. Mm-hmm. You're seeing some of the lawyers sort of shop themselves to potential clients who can afford them the opportunity to make these suits. Now, this is a living, but it's also, you know, I think a desire to, in some ways, go after the mainstream press. Uh, You know, the media lawyers I talk to at numerous major news organizations, either the organizations or their parent companies, say that there's been just a raft of such suits uh, stemming from the Trump years and continuing on after. And that it is often quite ideologically motivated. You know, you had Devin Nunes providing essentially a cottage industry, the former California congressman, Republican, uh, in trying to take on all kinds of of news organizations. Uh, I've been sued twice, uh, you know, uh, and by some sort of lawyers who are kind of at the edges of the Trump circles, strong ideological associations to them. Not successfully, I might add. But we're in a time when such considerations and concerns are very real, the cost of getting insurance for defamation and libel is skyrocketing for major news organizations. For smaller ones, it can be prohibitive. You know, at a lot of news organizations, you have to pay the first $100,000 out of pocket. And, you know, if you're a smaller news organization, that could be a lot of money. Right. And that's that's something you've been hearing for quite some time, and especially since the, the Teal Hogan suit was... Um, it's not just losing a libel suit that's a problem. It's just being sued, period, involves an enormous amount of time, money, um, which the individual journalist or their publication may not have. And it, it, it restrains reporting sort of in advance. And that's one of the big concerns about this. Even if you don't rewrite libel law formally, you're effectively doing it by scaring the heck out of people who might write aggressively about a public figure. 
Yeah. I mean, if the Times had been found liable, what they did was a terrible mistake and a terrible thing. And it was sloppy and it was heedless and needless because, yes, we have created a world in which people expect you to have fully formed, let's say they're not hot takes, but thoughts and reflection on deadline. Deadline reflection is kind of too sounds in dissonant terms, right? It sounds like an oxymoron. But they didn't need to publish this the same night. They just didn't need to do it. What it was done was wrong. And yet, you know, if the Times gets something wrong and from all of the internal communications feels terrible about it, you know, the editor had asked the original writer to take a closer look at the draft before it went. He was not inviting her to, but please don't look up the stuff involving Palin. He was looking for her to have some eyes to make sure that what he was writing was responsible. Uh, it's still his fault. If you can't get things wrong, people are going to be just much more measured. They're going to be more careful. And there are a lot of public, you know, there was a tension in the courtroom. It's very interesting to listen to uh, where the Times lawyers were teasing that out and saying, you know, this is inherently a mistake. We have the right for free speech and we have the right to get things wrong. And Palin kept returning to you have the right to write news about me that's bad as long as it's correct. And. The Times was saying we need leeway to be wrong because we can't be perfect. Those are intention and and it is a mechanism if the courts were to accept that to really hammer the media for taking on news organizations. You know, if the Times were to do that, remember that incredible 16 page special section they did on Trump's taxes. Mm -hmm. If they had had one or two or three corrections in there that didn't unravel the major truth. But it was under the banner of if you publish something wrong, you were liable. You have defamed me. You know, Trump could have gone after the paper for a ton. That is what Times v. Sullivan decided was that, you know, minor facts, you know, published in decent faith are not going to unravel the First Amendment protections that are implied by the First Amendment and the Constitution. David, I'm, I am biased in favor of the First Amendment in this case. I will, I will drop my objective uh, stance in this case. Uh, I'm also very happy you came on to explain all this. Well, I'm biased in that. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Peter. Thanks again to David. In a minute, we're going to hear from Chuck Klosterman. But first, a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm here with Chuck Klosterman. We're not in person. We talked many months ago about the fact that Chuck was going to come to New York and I'd see him, but it's still a pandemic. Anyway, Chuck Klosterman has a book to, to promote. It's called The 90s. Welcome, Chuck. It's great to be here, Peter, or I mean, for you to be there and for me to be here. It's great to be somewhere. We'll make it work. Um, I have a I have a, a, a time-sensitive question for you about the Super Bowl, which I assume okay. you watched all of, including halftime. A lot of people pointed to the halftime entertainment. Mary J. Blige, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg said, ah, this is the first time the Super Bowl has, has acknowledged hip-hop in a meaningful way. And then everyone else said, oh, this is the first big 90s act that we've seen as a nostalgia act. Uh, as Super Bowl halftime entertainment. Where did you come down on that? Well, I thought it was a pretty good halftime show relative to how the halftime show usually is. I mean, still, it is what it is. It's this kind of constructed event inside of a football game. I always feel like interest in the halftime show uh, and the response to the halftime show is decided way before it happens. Like, people are mostly interested in who is selected to do it. 
And if they feel like the people who are selected to do it is sort of a reflection of what they're hoping for, they inevitably see it as just, you know, wonderful. And if they have an issue with it, then they see it as kind of boring and dull and constructed. I thought it was interesting that Dr. Dre played piano in it, though. He was playing piano, which seems to suggest an interest in authenticity. So was the halftime show rockist? <laughs> I, what I like is there's like a half-hearted attempt by the Fox News part of the world to to stir up controversy and did Eminem need to kneel and was he but I don't think anyone cares about that other than well not just that it's pretty clear that that Eminem cleared the kneeling with the NFL before the event right mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. everybody's kind of on board with this then yeah uh, but it was good it was uh it was entertaining uh you know um you know they often say you know the the the, the belief always is is well anything top Prince you know the, when Prince uh performed and it was the Bears and the Colts, if I recall. Um, although I always thought it was weird that Prince played a Foo Fighters song in that halftime show. Like, why did he do that? That is excise from my memory as well. I just remember the the phallus in the rain, and it's canonically now the best. Um, but I would never say, oh, let's watch Prince at the Super Bowl if I wanted to remember what Prince was like. Well, certainly not let's watch Prince cover a Foo Fighters song. I just, I want that, yeah. <laughs> he has a huge catalog. <laughs> so it's like a strange choice. I'm going to come back to sports and pop culture at the end of this. Let's talk about pop culture and history and nostalgia. You are adamant about the fact that even though this book is called The 90s and it is about something that happened in recentish memory, it is not a nostalgia book. Why is this not about nostalgia for you? Well, I, I think that if someone thinks this book is nostalgic, they're conflating the definition of nostalgia with just the definition of remembering things. I mean, these things are in the past. You may remember them. Typically, to me, though, nostalgia means looking back on something through kind of the emotional prism of your own life. So you're thinking about something from the past and you're remembering it, how that felt to you at the time. And in a way, you're remembering your own life, which is why, you know, there can be a person who nostalgic for the Depression or whatever. You know, they, they think back to their childhood uh, during the Depression and they're like, it was a wonderful mm-hmm. time, even though it was awful. So. The idea of looking back on the 90s through this prism of myself or how I felt about them, that's not that's not part of this at all. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody who will be like, well, subjectively, he has no ability to separate himself. I suppose that's possible, but there's just no conscious attempt for me to re-remember these events differently than they actually were. In fact, my whole goal with this was to try to get back in time and not think about the 90s the way we think of them today. But to this sort of re-enter the texture of how it actually felt to experience them at the time, you know, which is why instead of doing a lot of interviews with people about their memories from the 90s, I tried to just find stories and data from the period itself. I mean, this is there's no revisionist aspect to this book. I mean, everything is revisionist, right? Because you're picking a lens and you got to pick what you want to focus on and what you not want to focus on. But the, your point is, this is your attempt to tell a history of the 90s. A revisionism would exist, in, 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 you know, it's like event A happened in the past, but our memory and understanding of that is incorrect. I'm revising how that is perceived. I'm, you know, that's not what I'm doing with this. Yeah. But my point is, this is, this is your attempt to do a history, not a personal history. Is that fair? Absolutely. So the, to me, the 90s don't seem very far away because like you, I was a conscious adult for for almost all of them. I was mostly conscious for all of it. For my kids, though, it doesn't seem like it's that long ago. They will consume culture from the 90s 
just as a matter of course. They don't think they're doing history. They realize that it's older. But, you know, this is stuff that is 20, it was 20 years before they were born. I, I grew up, I was born in the early 70s. I never consumed culture from the 50s or before that, unless like I was assigned to do it as part of a class or if it was an explicitly like a nostalgia thing like Shanana or something. Um, what does it mean that it seems more compressed now? Well, that's a, a, a super complicated thing because the most difficult thing about doing a book like this is dealing with the time frame that for some people is a vivid memory. For others, it's just expository history. And then for even older people, it's just one more chunk of their life that, that might not seem that remarkably different from the ones that preceded or came after. But I mean, what, we're, what you're discussing there is something that I've been talking a lot about when I do these interviews for this book is this idea of Mark Fisher's you know, slow cancellation of the future, which is he's this British kind of anti-capitalist theorist. He died very young. Uh, he was a, a kind of a peer of like Simon Reynolds in the 80s and 90s as a, a kind of a culture writer. Um, and he has this idea about how sort of time uh, and the the experience of time specifically has changed. And this is really sort of amplified then by the internet, which has sort of morphed the way people understand both the recent and the deep past. And it's not that like, oh, you get to a certain age now, like, you know, I'm going to be 50 or whatever. And like, I wish it was the 90s. Like, like I, I don't wish it was the 90s. And I don't think culture stopped in the 90s. But what has happened is a kind of a paradoxical deceleration of culture. And it, it does create the sense that the 90s were the last decade in the way we had traditionally described decades. Uh, the idea of this, that there it's kind of framed by certain events, that there is a sort of a connective tissue between uh, the people who experienced it and the events that they experienced, that there is sort of immutable qualities that we associate it with it. Um, so when you talk about your kids, they, they might, they don't look at the 90s, even though maybe, how, when were they born? Were they born post-2000? 2008 and 2010, yeah. So this is all, it's all super old for them. You know, again, I remember I would watch old sitcoms like Leave It to Beaver or something in the 70s, but it's not because I chose to watch them. It was just the only thing I could watch. And they were clearly old. They were in black and white and no one looked like that and it didn't seem relevant. Whereas my kids might watch Friends and kind of kind of looks and feels today-ish. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the difference for like using yourself as an example if you would watch an episode of, of Leave it to Beaver and then you would watch a show you wanted to watch that was new, you were watching um, Square Pegs or whatever was on at the time, you would notice beyond the black and whiteness, you would note a very like a, a marked difference in the similitude of the dialogue in that it would seem when you're watching something from the early period that they were talking in a way that did not seem to reflect the way people actually talk. Now, if we watch an episode of Square Pegs, we have the same feeling, although to a lesser degree. The way the stories were structured mm -hmm. uh, were pretty like hyper formulaic in the early period of television and then sort of became how could they take this formula and just sort of shift it slightly to be surprising a lot of times to the consumer. But now we've kind of reached a point where the differences are still happening, but they've microscoped way down. And you can always find examples of something like it's very easy to find an example of something now and say like, well, this seems completely, uh, you know, unlike anything that was happening in 2005 or whatever. You see this jump ahead. But those really are the exceptions. 
for the most part, it's not that culture is stopping or never changing. It's just that it doesn't seem to be moving in the linear way we expect or we're familiar with. And that's not necessarily good or bad, but it is different. And it allows a young person to see something from the 1990s and not feel like it was something that predates them, but actually something that was almost made for them now. I think of the, the 90s as the era where the internet took over everything, but you remind me that that's not really true. It was TV was the dominant force. Do you have a sense of sort of when you think the internet became the dominant medium? Because you spend most of your time talking in the book about TV, not about the internet. The internet's like a side part of your book. Well, I think that there will be a time in the future where people may look back on the 90s and the only thing that they really see as significant is kind of the advent of the internet. And it's basically the idea that we start a decade where it is just a completely fringe, insular thing for this small population of people who live their lives you know, in a world of computers. And by the end, it is this thing that... It's very difficult to have an office job where the internet isn't central to that experience. So it happens fast. It happens like, you know, in, in really less than 10 years. Uh, I, I think a, a real hinge point, I suppose, is 1995 because, you know, that's the beginning of Amazon only as a bookseller. But there you have it. You know, it's like uh, uh, Craigslist starts that year. And yet, though, for most people, 1995 was still a situation where it was incredibly easy to live without the internet. You could basically kind of wade into it if you were curious, but it wasn't essential at all. I mean, what is very interesting about looking at the, the Internet of the 90s is that in, in a lot of mechanical ways, the differences seemed a little bit minor. I mean, it was like, well, you can find driving directions easier or you can find recipes or you can run your fantasy football team or whatever. But now when we talk about problems with the Internet, if anybody does... The things they talk about are really modern kind of social media related problems, but which feel now as if they had always been intertwined with this mechanism. So people think of the early Internet the way they think about the modern Internet, even though there really wasn't that much of a relationship. Right. They're talking about social media and or that it's on your phone and you're sticking this phone in front of your face and you're glued to your phone instead of talking to your friends or whatever it is. Those things are intertwined. Speaking of which, you are you are the perfect person to ask this question. Um, you're probably not spending a lot of time thinking about Web3, but that's the, the new catchword for crypto and blockchain. And certainly last night you saw a ton of crypto ads on TV and and it's not nearly as mainstream as 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 the dot com boom was in the late 90s but there's definitely some some hints what i'm thinking about a lot is a lot of the discussion around web3 and crypto is very um angry and polarized is probably the wrong word, but I'm going to use polarized as a shorthand. Uh, people think it's great and it's the future or it's terrible. I don't remember that discussion about the internet in the 90s. It seemed much more benign. People were generally pretty eager to get into the internet. Am I misremembering that? Well, I, I, what you may be remembering was in some ways like the most kind of paradoxical thing about the internet's role during this period. This era of time, which is almost always categorized with this sense of people kind of, oh, underwhelmed, disinterested, kind of a whatever, cynical, all the cliches people use about uh, sort of the, you know, like the alleged Gen X mentality mm -hmm. or slackers or whatever, except as it applied to the internet, where there was just unlimited optimism, that the, the sense was that this would change everything 
and almost certainly in a positive way because it was such a small insular culture that the people uh, sort of, you know, pioneering and building the foundation of the internet worked from the premise that every person who eventually got on the web, which they assumed would eventually be everyone, would be interested and motivated in the same way that they were. So that, that this was going to be sort of a, like a, a, a societal shifting machine that would sort of eliminate certain hierarchies and create this enhanced freedom and all of these things. Then, of course, when it did become something that was normative, people started using the Internet for their own desires and the, and the reasons that they wanted, uh, which was not the same as those maybe original pioneers who in many ways were like kind of like technology obsessed former hippies. That's a, a real key element to the foundation of the internet. So, you know, now I think when people are, are kind of freaked out about, you know, crypto cryptocurrency, you know, like I, I, don't, I don't have any money in crypto, so I can, so I, this is not, has anything to do with, with my personal stake in this. I don't have $1 in it. But I do think that there is a discomfort in the kind of person who seems most interested in cryptocurrency, or at least was initially, who, you know, and I think there's this idea somehow that, um, that a desire to have an alternative form of currency is now kind of folded into this kind of a reactionary worldview, or that somehow it's, that, that the, the assumption is that the people doing this are trying to, you know, distance themselves from government, that, that, you know, that, that, that there's a, like a real libertarian idealism in, 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 w with the idea of cryptocurrency. So I think a lot of people's issues with it uh, have to do with who they assume uh, wants it uh, to exist and, and be central. I think if it, was, if it had been sort of introduced in a different way, if the initial idea of cryptocurrency would be like, well, this is going to be a way for like, uh, you know, like, uh, like marginalized classes of people, people who've been shut out of economics in the past will be able to sort of exist in their own way. And it will, it will sort of, um, you know, um, uh, overturn uh, the kind of the capitalistic hierarchy that's sort of oppressing everyone. Then I think everybody who's against crypto would love it now. And all the people currently obsessed with it would be very skeptical. So it's really, that's really, a, I think a perception thing. A lot of the crypto people do pitch it that way. This is going to let us overturn or this is going to let people who from marginalized places or you don't have to worry about what you look like or what your credentials mm -hmm, are because mm -hmm. all your work is yeah. recorded in the blockchain. But there is definitely that other group, too. It says government can't function. We're going to create our own society. Uh, we're, 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 we're building parachutes in the back of the plane because the whole thing's going down. Um, so you get you get both sides. What, what I was just going to say is it has been interesting just re recently. I've sort of heard the idea expressed of people getting into cryptocurrency um, just as like as a safety valve or something like like not not in a way to get rich or anything, but as a way to mm -hmm. to sort of kind of hedge against. Uh, I guess a fear of of social collapse or whatever. Like, but, so it's just like buying gold then in that case, which you know I'm mm -hmm. not doing that either. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm not a gold bug either. Although I I gotta say I because I spent a bunch of time thinking about this stuff at the end of last year and. Sometimes the 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 prepper mentality doesn't seem insane to me because you look at a world where we have a life-saving vaccine and people won't take it and we're certainly not going to take any steps to to solve our environmental crisis and I think you know obviously I I don't I'm not going to uh, uh can my own food or shoot my own game but it seems a little bit and you're in Oregon so maybe this is more comfortable for you but it seems a little bit insane to literally do nothing to prepare for 
something terrible happening. And then I get really stuck. And I go, well, what, what, what else are you supposed to do? I don't know that you're going to solve this for me. It's probably more of a therapist question. Well, no. What you're talking about is this growing sense of a fragility to the culture. And it does seem like our society is more fragile now than it has been, I can't say at any point, but for a very long time. One thing I do talk about in the book is sort of like the Y2K experience in 1999. There was some of that then there too, mm-hmm. especially when, you know, nobody could fully understand why, you know, th- this uh, way that microchips were designed using only two digits. No one was really sure why that would cause them all to just hemorrhage and fail. But there was like the sense that oh, I wonder if this is proof that we have handed too much of our lives over to technology and we've put ourselves in this situation where these guys who designed microchips in the 50s and 60s have unknowingly put us, you know, on the cusp of like falling back into the Stone Age in one sort of dramatic moment. Um, and then it didn't happen. And everyone was like, oh, well, I guess, you know, we, we were right. It was all kind of, you know, overheated or overblown. There's a sense of that, though, now in that it, it, it seems as though a bunch of things that we've talked about for years are escalating real quickly and sort of driving toward this unknown chasm that we can vaguely see in the distance, but we can't really alter. We can't alter our speed that we're moving toward it, or we can't really find any way to completely protect ourselves or insulate ourselves from what, what might happen. And there is this kind of fear. And I think that you see, like, if somebody is really interested in buying gold or like getting into Bitcoin or whatever with this idea that, well, if everything collapses, these things will remain. That does, I don't know, I, 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 it, it, sort of creates an, a very uncomfortable tension in society. Who, who is this book for? Is it for uh, people your age and my age who lived in the 90s and want, to, want a new way to look at it? Is it for my kids who didn't live in it? Is it uh, who, Who's the reader for this book? I, I guess I don't so much think in that way because I think it's impossible to do that. I mean, this book was uh, a, a little more sort of complication in the sense that the experience of the person consuming it is really going to color their relationship to the to the to what's in the book i mean if if you if you're reading about something Mm -hmm. that you vaguely remember what you're looking for is criticism you're looking for someone to sort of contextualize this thing that you thought had one meaning that maybe uh the meaning kind of rippled beyond that if you didn't experience at all it's kind of a book of exposition. It's almost like a textbook in a way that you can learn about these things that you may have heard about or maybe know about as a projection of the past, but maybe had never really thought about its origin before. If you're somebody who is very old, uh, you, you kind of think of the 90s as having maybe no special meaning in the trajectory of your life. It was just one decade among many. So which of those people is the book for? My hope is all three. You know, and that was what kind of was the tricky part of writing it. I mean, there was one point where I was like, do I got to fucking describe what a compact disc is? Like, do I really need to describe? (laughs) Well, I know it seems kind of funny. And part of me was like, um, well, you know, when I was a a kid, I knew what a reel to reel was. I'd never seen a reel to reel. So my thing is like somebody can understand what a CD is without without ever having, you know, experienced one or used one. But then at the same time, you know, we're now inundated with almost the glee people seem to have with not knowing things from the relatively recent past. Like I remember when Kanye West made a song with Paul McCartney and there were many stories 
in for the following two or three days where people would show tweets from people yeah. saying things like, who is this guy Kanye West is performing with? Because, of course, there's always a percentage of yeah. any culture who knows nothing. And there is, I think, in some weird way, a new kind of like glorification of having no relationship to the past. Like it's almost like there's a, a, an assumed sophistication in somebody who is able to to not care about the things that sort of built up to this moment because it's really only the moment that matters and they're living in the present or whatever. So I was just always trying to figure this out while doing this book. It was like, you know, what things do I need to explain and what things uh, can I accept to be common knowledge to the kind of person who's going to buy a 350 page book about the past, you know, like, can I just assume that they will have a rough idea of Atros Pro? Can I assume that they will have, you know, a pretty uh, kind of broad sense of what Garth Brooks was like or whatever? I mean, these, these are the kind of the questions I had, I kept asking while I was doing this book. So where do you come down on that? If you, if, if you need to explain, because my guess is that most people, well, I would assume the majority of people now don't know who H. Ross Perot is. And even people like you and me who live through it only have a sort of vague memory. So I assume you do have to explain who H. Ross Perot was to that audience. Well, you know, and it's not just explaining who he was, but in the course of doing this, you know, I'm, I'm, so I'm writing about the 92 election. And just so every so often I would, I would come across, I would find somebody who was maybe in their 30s or 20s. And I would say, like, are you familiar with H. Ross Perot? And they would usually say yes, partially because he died in the span of writing this book. But what I would always ask them is, what percentage of the popular vote do you think he got in 1992? And they would be like, well, I have no idea. So I would say, like, well, just guess. And almost always the guess was around 5%. Now, the actual answer is 19%. That's like one out of five voters voted for him. But... The idea that a third-party candidate mm -hmm. had that much influence on the election is something that doesn't seem feasible now. It seems like a, a shockingly high number. So that that would tell me it's like, okay, so people might know about this person as kind of a historical figure or maybe like a, a historical triviality or whatever. But what they don't know, I guess, if they don't remember it distinctly, is that uh, he was about as successful of a third party candidate as one can imagine in American national politics. So, and he's the reason we have Bill Clinton because he took away uh, George Bush's vote. There's a reasonable argument which you make that, that that Clinton doesn't exist without him. Well, here's the thing. Okay, so mechanically, that doesn't seem to be the case. He got 19 percent of the vote, but all exit polling suggests that. Of those 19%, when asked who they would have voted for, uh, about 9.5% of that 19% said Clinton and the other half said Bush. So it seemed as though it was the, the epitome of a push. That, it didn't, it, that, that if you go purely through the numbers, it's almost like, well, he is just a, a trivia question because he didn't really impact the outcome. That's the, the kind of the math side of it. But then there's the actual side of it, which is that if Perot is not in that race... Uh, really going after Bush pretty much constantly because though he's a third-party candidate, his issues were with Bush. It allowed Bill Clinton to be kind of a charming optimist. He never had to really go to battle with Bush. He never had that 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 he didn't. He never had to go a negative with his campaign. He was able to sort of be something that people really did want, which was this new idea for a president, somebody who seemed more like your father as opposed to your grandfather. So while we can't 
look at Perot and say, he cost Bush the election because that 19% he took would have went to Bush. He did alter uh, sort of how that election played out and it created this completely bizarre scenario where, you know, the first George Bush was an exceedingly popular president, then became incredibly unpopular during the one window of time when he really needed to get support from people. When he needed to be popular, he just tanked. And then he left after one term and there was immediately some revision about, well, you know, maybe he was an underrated president. So it it is, a, I think, you know, it's just a fascinating election. Now, now someone could say, well, you think it's fascinating because it was 1992 and that was you were in college and these things mattered more, you felt more, whatever. I guess, but I think it's pretty meaningful even if you take me out of the equation entirely. Like it doesn't, it doesn't seem as though my memory of that event has anything to do with why it matters. The polling number is interesting because in my memory, it was that he was absolutely taking votes from Republicans, that it was he was giving, you know, if you were a Republican who was angry with George Bush about taxes, uh, you could vote for Ross Perot. Um, it's, which brings me to my question about research. Um, I'm assuming you're looking at old newspaper clippings, uh, maybe some other books. Um, how did you research the 90s having lived through it? And then how do you think that would change if 20 years from now are you going to write a book about this era where there's an explosion of media um, and so many more viewpoints you could incorporate, so much more media you could look at? What I would do is I would sort of map out in my mind what I wanted to write about, what, I, what, what felt significant to me and in, in, from like a, you know, from a just like purely practical. It's like, it's like you know, what are the things that, that to me um, – kind of spike in my mind as central ways of understanding the period. Okay. And then of course I have like my kind of built in memory of those things. So I would go back and research to see how much my memory matched what I thought was happening. Okay. Like Perot's a great example of this where my memory of the event was more like what you described, that it was essentially two Republicans running against one Democrat. And that was the difference, but that wasn't how it was really at all. You know, so so what would happen sometimes is there would be kind of like the kind of a, this is a strange term, but like an emotionally tactile memory, like something that it feels uh, very clear mm -hmm. that this is how something was. And then when I would go back and I would read the stories at the time, which were which was, a, I mean, certainly easier than it will be going back to this period where it'll be hard to deduce what media to trust. It was a little, it's a little more straightforward in the 90s and that um, uh, newspapers particularly in magazines operated more in the way they had in the seventies and eighties, where uh, it was like a, a straightforward attempts at uh, at least the appearance of objectivity. So you, you would, you, you didn't get a sense that you were reading a, a, a news story that was attempting to persuade you to believe anything. It was more like, well, here's the information. Then you could, even if you'd looked at, you know, books from that time, uh, they of course would have you know, more of a subjective view, uh, but that was usually made pretty clear. Unlike my other books, my other essays where I would just kind of just go from my mind and I would just be like, okay, well, this is, this is how it seems to me, you know, and you can disagree with the way I view this or not. What I was trying to do was find things in the past that matched or contradicted my memory. And, and, and are you literally just going through Lexis Nexus and, or do you have an assistant? I mean, how do you actually, are, are, how much of this book is research versus you putting together an argument? Oh, I mean, 
I, I I don't know if I make a lot of strong arguments in the book, so it seems like to me there's more research. I mean, newspapers.com is actually a pretty good yeah. source for this because you can actually go on there and see not just the story, but how it was visually presented on the page. You know, you, you're, you're like, you're kind of almost looking at these snapshots of these, well, you are, these snapshots of these old newspapers. That was uh, extraordinarily helpful. You know, I had a research assistant, uh, somebody I'd known, uh, she was the daughter of a friend of mine, but she had worked in libraries uh, a lot of her life and was just a real smart person. And because the pandemic was happening and I was at home, sometimes I would be like, well, okay, uh, can you find me some information about, say, uh, Blockbuster Video? For example, like like uh, can can I get like a kind of like a bundle of ideas mm-hmm. about you know stories about blockbuster video and you know from the eighty from like nineteen eighty five to nineteen ninety five and then she would sort of use library sources for that and then I would just kind of go through it and and I would just like I said it's kind of compare what I believe to be the sort of the tactile experience with what was the presented experience and then kind of tri- triangulate like this third. I don't know, third tier of understanding. I don't know. I mean, I mean, the, the, the research is in the back of the book. So if somebody wants is like wondering, like, what research is this? Like, there it is. You know, I know this is not a nostalgia book, but that said, what, what are you nostalgic for? Are there things that you thought were objectively better in the 90s or that worked better or we were better off not having? I mean, the 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 nostalgia that I feel from that period. So when I say the things that that I think I'm probably using the way I want things to be or the way I want to remember them or the feeling I want that I'm kind of injecting into this past memory. It's not really that much based in art or technology or any of that. I guess I'm nostalgic just for the way it was to be a person during that period. I I just, I, a lot of the things that are supposed to be negative reflections uh, of, of this generation of people, sort of like, kind of like a, a detachment from news in a way in some ways, almost like a, um, uh, and like an amoral consumption of the world. And, um, the idea that, uh, you know, you could have a pretty significant disagreement with someone and the stakes seemed low enough that it could actually forge a friendship as opposed to ending a relationship. That I think is what I'm nostalgic for. And that may be untrue. These things I've just described that may not have been how it was like, uh, uh, but it's, but those things feel to me like they were. And that's why I'm skeptical. Like I'm, I'm, I'm very skeptical. I don't believe I have control over what I feel or think. I'm, I, I, I don't think anyone does. Uh, I, I just, I don't think that, that we have the ability to have agency over how our mind works because we're constantly pushing it through our memories. We're constantly pushing it through the way it is perceived by others. We're self-editing without even knowing it. I don't know if my sense of how I was in, say, 1996 is accurate. But if you're asking me about nostalgia, that's what I miss. I kind of miss how uh, it seemed as though being an autonomous person with your own sort of interior life and interior thoughts it was very much an option. There was no requirement not to be that person. And if you wanted to engage in the world, if you wanted to engage in the larger society, that was your choice. You had control over that decision. Um, so that, I guess, is what I miss. I mean, I think what you're probably usually asking about or when other people ask me this question, they're always saying, hoping that I'll say something 
I'm like, uh, uh, you know, uh, music stopped being good in year X or, um, I, uh, or I, I like landline phones. Sure. Yeah. And that's like, that's not how it is for me. I mean, it's it, my life. I mean, for pretty obvious reasons is way better than it was in the nineties. So I would, ne- I, I have no desire to like return to that time. Although I did enjoy returning to that time as like a mental exercise. Like, you know, I wrote this during the pandemic. I would get up at five and then go at my office and write until 10. So I'd have five hours where I was like living in the nineties and considering how the rest of the world was, that was fantastic. Like it was wonderful to have this period of my day where I was thinking about things that not only hadn't I thought about in a long time, but that seemed just, I was almost charmed by the fact that these things that had seemed so important and are still must be remembered as significant still don't seem the way everything feels now where we, I just always feels like we're on the precipice of like the end of everything. And that, and it's really drilled into us. I, I like, the, I read about the 1996 election kind of, kind of just briefly, but I think that it was just, I don't know, almost like it felt good to read about an election where the emphasis did not seem to be, this is the most important election of your lifetime. And I don't think we'll ever have an election where that's not told to us again. It seems like every time we have a presidential election now, we are informed that no election has ever mattered more than the one we're about to conduct. And in 1996, that wasn't the case. Like, uh, you know, turnout went down. The idea was like, well, Clinton is against Dole. Dole's kind of running as like, uh, it's like his chance or his, he like, he, he kind of earned this after putting his time in, but he's not really a viable opponent. It's, you know, um, uh, I, I, it seems it seems weird to be to 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 talk positively about something mattering less, but some ways I, I wish things mattered less. Yeah, I just all, all I can remember now is the SNL sketch where they did the real world with Bob Dole showed up. I think Norm Macdonald played him, um, <laughs> trying to grip a pencil. I can't remember the punchline of it. I just remember that. Let's let's back to modern times, and then and then I'll let you go. Um, is sports betting legal in Oregon? I think it is. It is only pro though, no college. And are are you are you a sports betting person? Because I'm wondering what you thought of 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 watch. Because I'm a little obsessed with this, the idea that that sports betting is now fully integrated into watching television, watching sports on TV, and that when you and I were growing up, it was super taboo. And I'm not sure how I feel about it. And I'm curious how you feel about it. Well, yeah, it used to always be like a controversy if like someone scored late in a game and Brent Musburger sort of suggested that was a backdoor cover. Like he would never use those words. Like he would never use the words backdoor cover in a broadcast. I was initially uh, uncomfortable with this idea because my thing is always, well, I don't really necessarily uh, recognize what the problem is going to be, but it seems to make a shift this dramatic uh, there's there's always a chance that other things are going to happen that would have been impossible to anticipate. And this thing that we, we all love is going to be ruined or coll- or will collapse because of some thing that we tried to add on to make it better. Um, that really has not happened. I have to say that what it has kind of become is just one more thing to talk about when one talks about sports. For example, the Super Bowl. Like, I had conversations over text with people about, you know, will the Bengals be able to pass block against the Rams? And, like, do the Rams have too many weapons? And if it's close, will uh, the Bengals end up winning because Burrow is more clutch? All of these things. But then we also talked about 
how radical it would be for the, or, or, or how meaningful the difference is between a two and a half and a three and a half point spread. Because once it goes to three and a half, that means, you know, you got a full field goal in there. That's a huge difference. Um, mm-hmm. And it was fun to talk about. It's fun to talk about those things. So I, I, I think that in many ways, fantasy sports have prepared us for this move into um, like a uh, really a gambling driven sports world where, you know, fantasy sports introduce people to this idea of being extremely serious about a game with no interest in the outcome. Gambling is, uh, you know, an intense interest in a specific kind of outcome that is really secondary uh, to the meaning of the winner and the loser. So I, I guess I like it, you know. I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I do sense how it could be something that could sort of take over one's sports experience. So I'm very hesitant to to gamble a lot of money myself plus i'm just i'm always been the kind of person who it's like making money does not feel as good as losing money feels bad it's just kind of a person like that you know where if i yes if i if i gamble if i put 500 bucks on something and i win oh it's nice but losing 500 bucks feels worse to me so yeah Okay, you and I are aligned. Chuck Klosterman wrote an excellent book. It's called The 90s. I hope everyone who listens to this podcast goes out and buys it. Don't just read it, buy it, so Chuck can keep making more books. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks again to Chuck for bearing with me with some some internet audio issues. He was a good sport about the whole thing. Uh, And thanks again to David Fulkenflick. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Travis and Jelani for producing and editing this show. And thanks to you guys for listening and writing and telling other people about it. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.